Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 15th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Promise Made, Promise Fulfilled, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 34. Enjoy. Today's message I've entitled just simply Promise Made, Promise Fulfilled. And when we start to look at how great our God is, I hope that what you see most in this message, in these words that God gives us, is the beauty of the gospel and the loveliness of Christ. For he is ultimately the promised one. But we couldn't get to the promised one without first going through the promised child. There's a lot to be said about this particular area of scripture. I don't think that it's by accident that we fall on Genesis 21. I can tell you that as pastors we didn't plan on Genesis chapter 21 to be discussed on the Sunday after the Wednesday that represented 18 years since terrorists flew jets into our buildings and Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. That particular time, I'm sure it immediately just mentioned and it takes you back. If you're old enough to have been around when that took place, you probably remember specifically where you were and exactly what you were thinking and feeling. And it's possible that what you were thinking and feeling is not quite the same as what God calls us to think and feel when darkest moments take place. For me, September 11th is a burden that I carry with me. It's a burden because on September 10th, I was at a board meeting, an executive leadership team meeting, discussing how our next fiscal year was going to look as a corporation and a publicly traded company. And as we ended up the day, we ended up at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and we were on our way actually to New York City, where we would meet with an investment group at the rim of the world, at the top of the World Trade Towers the next morning. But my boss, kind of oddly, looked at me, he says, you know what, Jeff, he says, you've been on the road for weeks and on this road show, and why don't you just go home, go see Jill, go see the girls. You know, just change your flight and just go home. So I did, I didn't get home till about two in the morning in San Diego, California. Man, did my phone and everything start lighting up early in the morning that day. Because the World Trade Towers was not only where my colleagues were and some of my employees were, it was, it was our single largest contract. It was a contract that we served and we took care of. We knew many and of all of the people in those complexes. And as it started to unfold, I remember watching the television and I was intimately familiar with the facility. And I was trying to count how many floors above were still above where the plane had entered the first plane. Because I was doing the math in my head of how many people could possibly be trapped above that line. Knowing the design of the building and the emergency exits, it was unfathomable. At one point, my math was somewhere in the 
25 to 26,000 people that would have been above those floors. And on that day, in God's will, in accordance with his plan, I don't know how these things work. I don't know how when people do things from evil, God still does for good. I only know that that is true because of what God's word says. And we're gonna see concurrence here today. What Pastor Bob will often refer to as mystery. I don't know how what people do for evil, God does for good, how they in fact line up, but 17 of my colleagues lost their lives that day. I remember when things calmed back down and I went back out there and I did all 17 of those funerals. And just the opportunity to stare at loved ones and share the kindness of Christ was overwhelming. This is going to be highs and lows, this section of God's word. It's going to remind us of exactly who Ishmael is. And we're gonna see God's kindness upon him. You see, Ishmael is recognized as an important prophet and patriarch of Islam. Muslims believe that Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael and that God would establish a great nation through Ishmael, and God did. It's difficult oftentimes for us to reconcile. In fact, this is gonna be broken into two parts. The first part will be um, Genesis 1 through 21, and the second part will be from 22 through 34. But in the first part, Abraham believed God's promise. But to this point, it had not been realized. God could have used other means to make Abraham a great nation. As we saw, sinfully, Abraham offered several other options. But his promise was a child that would come specifically through Abraham and Sarah. And this chapter records the fulfillment of God's promise. I want to say to you in advance that today's message is not a story about Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. It is, however, a story about monotheism, that there is but one true God, and that the promises of this God leads to the gospel. It's not about politics. I'm not taking a position of whether I'm pro-war or anti-war. I'm not taking any specific position that we would politically consider whatsoever. If you feel the need to send me emails after, I invite it. Because when we look at the word of God, if we fail to see the kindness of God and the grace of God, then we are missing the big picture of God. This story records Sarah's response to God having made her laugh again, and this time it's out of joy. It also records the conversation between Abraham and Sarah regarding Ishmael living in the same house as Isaac. It deals with God's instructions to Abraham, Hagar's prayer, and the Lord's comfort and rescue of Hagar. 
You see, Isaac was the child of promise. But that did not mean that God did not care for Hagar and Ishmael. When we start to look at part two, I'll wait for that, but when we start to look at part one, it leads to our first point of two points today. God's provision always supports God's promise. God's provision always, always supports his promise. We start in verse 1, 21-1, and it says that the Lord visited Sarah. The Hebrew word there is pakad. It means God's visit. It usually involves blessing or judgment. Listen to me. If, in fact, God appears to you at the foot of your bed one night, I want you to understand in the fear and reverence that you're feeling that it's either going to be a spectacular event or a not-so-spectacular event. (laughs) When God visits and he comes near, it is because of blessing or it is of judgment. But the key here is the phrase, as he had spoken. The Lord is always faithful to his word. In fact, he says in a threefold repetition in verses one and two, he's saying over and over again, emphasizing the certainty of God's word, and he's saying, like he said. You know, there are so many times in God's word that God keeps telling Abraham, right? I will bring you and Sarah a child, so what you want me to do is go do this. No, I... God will do this. I think it's really a simile of our entire lives. God keeps saying, I have done this for you. Okay, so you want me to go do this? No. I want you to rest in me. I want you to do as I command. I want you to follow as I ask you to obey. But the birth of Isaac begins a series for us of unlikely and miraculous births in Scripture. And ultimately climaxes with the birth of Jesus to a virgin. But in verse 2, he says, at the time. The Hebrew term there for time is moed. It refers to an appointed time at an appointed place. We see it in Galatians 4.4, that the birth of Isaac as at the appointed time is a foreshadow for the birth of Christ in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This Septuagint, this same word in the Greek as it is in the Hebrew, is pointing to a place and time, specific. But in in 21.3, Abraham obeyed the Lord and gave the child a name. And of course, the name that he gave him was the name he was told in Genesis 17.19. Where God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish, again, I, God, will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. It's interesting that the name Isaac reflects both their laughter of disbelief and the subsequent laughter of joy. That's precisely what Isaac means. It's amazing how God in his sovereignty is able to tell him, you're going to name him Isaac as she's over there. (laughs) 
And then when he comes back and says, a year from now, you'll have a child. And she laughs with joy. Oh my gosh, his name will be Isaac. What a great name. First there was disbelief, now there's joy. That's what Isaac means. No accidents, no luck, just the sovereign providential will of God. But in verse four it says that he was gonna do as God commanded him. In Genesis 70, 10, he said, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So Thomas talked about circumcision as being the sign and seal of the covenant. The act of obedience to God to show that you believe in him. But in verse six, God has made me laugh, Sarah says. Sarah at that point recognized the irony of her previous laughter of disbelief and now her current laughter of joy, thus the name Isaac. In verse nine though, we start to take a change. The son of Hagar here is scoffing at Isaac. Ishmael is scoffing at him. The tension here is a continuation of the tension between Sarah and Hagar that began in Genesis chapter 16. The Hebrew word that's used here, uh, tasak, which means mocking, is a play on the name of Isaac, Yitzhak, which means laughter. And so if he was calling him Yitzhak, then he would be consistent. But because he actually used the word tasak, he was mocking him. So we see this same aspect of mocking as the Septuagint is persecuted. Paul in Galatians 4.29 suggests the word of persecution. He's talking in context about the the boys. And in verse 29, Galatians 4.29, he says, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So also it is now. See, just as Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted for my name's sake, right? To be persecuted is actually a great blessing from God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I always see this as high praise. In fact, recently I was out to dinner with some former colleagues and one is Jewish and one is in fact uh, uh, an atheist. And the entire dinner, they mocked me and made fun of me and calling me a Jesus freak, I can get no higher praise. In verse 10 though, Abraham is asked to do the unthinkable by his wife. And in this unthinkable thing, remember Bob had said, be careful to the voices that you listen to. Because Abraham had listened to his wife before and it got him into trouble. And now she's saying, cast out this woman. This passage introduces the story of Abraham's two sons that will control the ultimate history of two nations. It 
It's not on the board, but in Galatians, if you want to write it down for later, Galatians 4, 21 through 31. I'll cut it down a little bit here, but it says this. It says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. If I skip down to verse 28 of that same section, it says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Let me tell you this. Every single person in this room is not only a descendant of Adam and a descendant of Noah and his three sons, but every single person who professes the name of Jesus Christ is a member of the Abrahamic covenant and that family of promise. But just as at that time, he says, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. You see, this is about rebirth. This is about our spiritual rebirth. So also it is now. You should be experiencing persecution if you are living in, apart from this world. But what does the scripture say? It says, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For those that believe in Jesus Christ, we are in effect born again of the free woman. We have been set free. But this matter that was going on in 10, in verse 11, was displeasing to Abraham. Raha is the means, the word bad is what he's saying. He says this word twice in verse 11 and in verse 12. One particular commentary that I looked at calls it this way. It says, Abraham is caught in the predicament that polygamists always experience. He ultimately must show preference for one child over another. I can tell you if you've lived in a house where a parent has showed preference for one child over another, you have a miserable existence. And not only that, his preferential treatment must also extend to one spouse over the other. I cannot fathom. But ironically, through Ishmael is the firstborn, but he does not receive the blessing or the birthright from his father. We see this as a pattern throughout scripture, do we not? Cain was the firstborn. He wasn't that great. We're gonna see again with Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. Jacob tricked him out of his birthright. But it's Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We see a pattern the first Adam pales in comparison to the second one, does he not? You see, it's a part of God's plan. And as Abraham is wrestling this in verse 12 and 13, God spoke to Abraham in a dream and reminded him that the promise would be through Isaac, but that God would also bless Ishmael because he is your seed. The faithfulness of God to keep his word. 
In verse 14, because we see this, if I imagine Abraham to be anything in our contemporary days, he probably would have been a fireman. He would have been a policeman. He would have been some kind of job that requires you to be a bit of a control person. But the wife told me, God confirmed it, so I'm up at the crack of dawn off to do what I have to do. We'll see this again next week when he's told that you need to take your son and offer him in sacrifice. I'm not sure I'd be up early for that event, but Abraham was. As he's up early to pack things up for Hagar and Ishmael to pack them and send them on their way to wander in the desert. Abraham had the habit to be immediate in his obedience when God spoke to him. As Abraham prepared food and water for Hagar and Ishmael, that turned out to, in fact, not be enough for their journey. It's not clear if the supplies were insufficient or his directions for her regarding where to go were unclear. It doesn't change the story. She ran out of food and water. Verse 14, Hagar wandered in the wilderness. Hagar was sent out without knowing to where she was in fact going. We'll see this with the Hebrews for 40 years. They wandered in the desert. We'll see Jesus go on a journey in the wilderness to be tempted in all ways. But this test and this temptation leads to ultimately to Hagar and Ishmael being out of food and water. And as she lays her son down, probably at this point, he's about 13 to 15 years old, and she lays him down and she goes a bow and arrow's distance away from him and sits from him because she does not want to sit and experience the anguish of her her son dying. And in that moment, as there's this crying out, God heard in verse 17. And God, in his grace, heard the cries of the boy. And despite what God knew about the future history of Ishmael's offspring, he protected the boy because of his promise to Abraham. You see, this is about the one true God. And the one true God keeping his promise of kindness and faithfulness. The angel of God instructed Hagar to take the boy by his hand He literally says, make firm your hand in his. And she should abandon him no longer and be firm in God's promise. And there it is in verse 19, God opened her eyes. He made her to see that which was already there, a well. You see, the well was there all the whole time, but she couldn't see it. In fact, we're going to see here in the second part that the well was actually dug by Abraham long before. But Genesis 13 13 through 14, like we'll see next week with Abraham when God causes him to see that there's a ram that is stuck in the thicket. Just as Hagar was awakened to see the well. But see, right here, as we finish out this first part, God's promise becomes realized in verses 19 and 20. And it says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, 
And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. God was with him. God never left him. God never forsook him. This is Ishmael. This is the the patriarch of Islam. And just as I can't reconcile what terrorists did 18 years ago, I can't seemingly reconcile this other than to say that God is faithful to those who cry out to him. In part two, this passage chronicles a covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. The significance of this passage is Abraham finding a place in the land promised to him in safety. There's also another highlight of this passage is the explanation for the origin of the name Beersheba. This part two records the conversation between Abraham and Abimelech and their mutual promise of kindness to each other. You see, when Abraham and Abimelech previously met on the occasion when Abraham lied about his wife, when he said that Sarah was his sister because he was fearful of his own life, Abimelech was the one who endorsed Abraham living where it pleases you in 20 verse 15. And thus while the Lord gave Abraham authority to dwell in this land, his presence was recognized by the king of Gerar. Abraham will even at some point he will say that, well, I mean, I wasn't really lying because she really is my sister. Sarah is, in fact, his half-sister. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, a half-truth is a whole lie. Stop trying to downplay and, and dismiss the sin in our lives and take ownership of it and look to the heavens and cry out to God, and he will be with you. But our point, too, is that God's kindness is consistent with his promise. His kindness is always consistent with his promise. In verse 22, Abimelech recognized the blessing of the Lord on Abraham. What he's doing here is that is I believe that this is growing out of his previous encounter when God spoke to Abimelech, God um, uh, or, uh, called Abraham a prophet and answered Abraham's prayers. Mainly, he answered his prayers about the infertility of the women in Abimelech's home. And although some of Abraham's resources came directly from Abimelech, we see that in 20 verse 16, the king sees the blessing of the Lord on all that you do. He's making a statement here that everything you do, Abraham, God seems to put his blessing on. So therefore, I'm not going to pick a war with you. The fact that he has Phicol with him at the ceremony indicates that Abimelech's promise is not to pursue military action against Abraham. But in fact, he wants to propose a treaty. In verse 23, he wants to propose a treaty of not to deal falsely. There's no doubt that the king remembered their previous encounter when Abraham dealt falsely with him. And in this term, we see it used in Exodus 20, 16 in the Ten Commandments when the command that says not to bear false witness against one's neighbor, don't lie. Abimelech has his reasons to be suspicious, of course, of Abraham, but recognizes God's blessing on his life, so he wisely seeks a covenant of truth and peace between them. 
Abimelech's proposal includes his offspring, but does not specifically include any offspring of Abraham. Perhaps he was unaware of the birth of Isaac. Abimelech professed to show kindness. He chested, is the Hebrew. He showed kindness to Abraham. This is one of the attributes of God to his people. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a characteristic fruit of God's kindness. In verses 25 through 26, while interrupting the covenant-making ceremony, Abraham airs a grievance that he has with Abimelech related to Abimelech's servants taking possession of a well. And it's a well that Abraham had previously dug. We'll see it much later in Genesis in 26, 17 through 23, when it, there's a conflict between Isaac and some herdsmen. And the herdsmen, in fact, are saying, you can't dig that well there. And he's, every time he digs a well, that's ours, that's ours, that's ours. You see the war, the different things. We've said for years, right, that this is a battle over oil. I can tell you that the battle continues today, and it's not over oil, it's over water. Because from this well where it was is in a little place called Beersheba. In fact, as recent as 1947, there was a war over this well. Abimelech protests that he is unaware of the situation regarding this disputed well and suggests that Abraham bears some of the blame for not telling him of the situation. But regardless, in verse 27, they made a covenant. The term for making a treaty here is the word karat, which means to cut a deal, to cut. And the cut was of lambs. They would offer a sacrifice. The giving and the receiving of the lamb stipulates that Abraham dug the well in Beersheba and thus rightfully owns the well. This is where Ishmael is earlier. He's at the well that Abraham had dug previously. The word Beersheba, right? Berer means well. There's a significance of the word oath, which is the word shava. It's used three times in verses 23, 24, and 31. The word itself sounds very much like the Hebrew word seven, which is sheva, which is what we would call covenant. That word is used in verses 28, 29, and 30. And thus, Beersheba can mean well of oath or well of seven. Seven lambs is what was sacrificed to signify who the wells belong to. But Abraham, in verse 33, called on the name of the Lord. And the tree that he planted at the site of the oath, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. You see, spiritual markers remind us of the goodness of the Lord in our lives. Just as a couple weeks ago, many of you signed people's names on the back of this carpet. Those that were here at the beginning signed names on the floor. There's names on the rocks in the monument that's out over here when we, in God's goodness, when we paid off the debt of this property. There's tiles from the fountain off to my right that bear the names of those that we wish to come to know the Lord. And they are markers of great moments of God's goodness in our lives. 
just as this tree is. But what's interesting is that this is the first time that God has given the name the everlasting God. This is the word that is used on the covenant with Abraham in chapter 13, verse 15, and also in chapter 17, verses 7, 8, 13, and 19. But God promised that his covenant with Abraham would be an everlasting covenant. Abraham was able to reasonably deduct that if he's making an everlasting covenant, then he must in fact be a God that is everlasting. He will go nowhere. This is good news. But in 34, he's living in the lands of the Philistines. This, of course, foreshadows future encounters between the Israelites and the Philistines. David tells us in 1 Samuel 27, 7, that he himself was in the land of the Philistines for 14 months. This battle that continues to go back and forth between these two nations. I hope that you're starting to see the current conflicts in the Middle East. Because what was true then is still in fact true today. So what did we see in part one? What I saw was the verbs in the passage. God visited Sarah. God heard the boy. God opened Hagar's eyes. God was with the boy. You see, God is faithful to his word. God fulfilled his promise to Sarah. God is even able to make people laugh. God's provision always, always, always supports his promise. And Abraham may not have provided Hagar and the boy with enough resources to meet their needs, but God always provides. And he visits those who trust in him. His kindness is incredible. A lot of you have asked, why am I limping or walking like I'm 90? I can tell you that it, I wish it was a heroic battle, right? That there was some thief that was doing something and I open field tackled and it was just this great honoring moment. No, I stepped on oil at a gas station and went man down. And tore this knee and tore all the muscles on this side. And so walking has been a labor uh, sitting and standing is the worst thing you can ask me to do. But in that time when I was laying on the ground, feeling the pain of torn tendons and ligaments and whatever else is going on in this knee, I remember actually thinking, God, why haven't you finished me? Like, take me to, I'm done. Check, please, right? Let's just be done, because I don't want to be here right now. But I remember as I'm regaining composure, right? Nothing's probably funnier than most people than to see an old fat guy man down. But at this moment, right, as I'm crawling up the hood of my car, trying to get up, I'm realizing that there's some guy standing there with his 12-pack of beer saying nothing. Another guy standing there like this. And a woman's over there videotaping me. There is no kindness in this world. And the call of us as a Christian is to be reflective of the kindness of God. <coughs> but God hears the cries of those who suffer. 
God opens the eyes of those who call on him. God will clarify his will. And I have to tell you, our disobedience does not undermine his will. Abraham disobeyed and disobeyed. We see the disobedience in all of scripture. It keeps going, but God is the steadfast one. He's the one who continues to be faithful. This isn't a call for you to do anything you please. This isn't permission of license because God will forgive you, but it is the hope of the gospel that we have because we continue to sin day after day, moment after moment. And if not for God's kindness, what would there possibly be? A lady videotaping you. A guy standing there with his beer and another person in Bill Elderman of what could possibly have happened here. God will open the eyes of all who look to him. That's what I saw in part one. In part two, what I saw is evidence that God is with you. It created questions in my mind. Do others see the hand of God on your life? You see, when we look like the world, that means that we don't look like Christ. You have to ask yourself, is God evident in all that you do? <clears throat> do people, in fact, recognize you as the Jesus freak in their family? Yes, the lover of souls, the person who proclaims Christ in all events, the person who, while laying there in their anguish and is about to take their last breath, says to him, it was all for Christ and his glory. Do you have that hope? the evidence of God in you? Do you have the covenants of kindness? He shows us such kindness. Romans 2, 3 and 4 tells us that kindness is what leads people to repentance. And even as God's kindness draws us to him, it is our kindness with others that should point others to him. Amen. Calling on God's name is whatever, when whatever situation circumstance, land, or wherever you would be sitting to live is what we're called to do, to call upon him. Despite the struggles in this new land, Abraham remembers his covenant with God and that the God of everlasting and calls on his name. So what? So what does this mean? Again, right, we gotta get up Monday, we gotta go to work, we gotta go live our lives. It means this, seven lambs sealed the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech, but it is one spotless lamb named Jesus who forever sealed God's covenant with his people. Those whom believe in Jesus are heirs of the promise. Galatians 3.29 says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, both parts one and two should raise at least three questions for us to consider. Number one, do others see God in you? Do others see God in you? Do you hear his voice? Do you walk in his way? Do you realize his promise has been fulfilled? You see, just like Spurgeon said, all of religion says do. Christianity says done. That is the fact. Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath that was due unto you and to me. <clears throat> and the only question left is, do others see God in you and do others see kindness in you? Ephesians 4 tells us, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted and forgive as Christ has forgiven you. 
I don't care about your politics, Republican or Democrat, whether we should have gone to war or shouldn't have gone to war, whether we should get rid of the Second Amendment or keep the Second Amendment. I don't care. What I want to say to the world is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you don't follow him, then his promise will come true that you will not be in the kingdom of heaven. You will not be a part of his nation, the nation of Christ, the nation that will stand before a holy God and be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven as a child of the promise, an heir with Abraham. And lastly, do you call on the name of the Lord regardless of your circumstances? At your darkest hour, do you call on the world or do you trust in his promise? His promise that he would never leave you. He would never forsake you. His promise that if you come to him and you're weary and you're heavy laden, he'll give you rest. His promise that if you merely believe in him, you will be saved. I pray that we would put our hearts in Christ, in Christ alone. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we enter into your worship, as we lift our hands and we pour out our hearts, I pray that we would flood your throne room with absolute confidence in belief that your promise made is a promise fulfilled. And you, Lord, said that you are coming back and we wait eagerly for that moment to take place. But whether you take us home or whether you return, we pray that we would stand in faith and in faith alone. We pray that we would see the fullness of your glory and your grace in the lives of each other and that our kindness would be at the forefront. It is in Christ's name. Brothers and sisters, may we always remember the faithfulness of God that it is this God and this God alone that sets you free from the consequences of your sin. But please, please don't miss the point. Take the kindness of God and share it with the world. Whether it be Jew or Gentile, Muslim or Buddhist, I don't care. But the love of Christ needs to be seen in the people of Christ so that the kindness of God will lead people to repentance. Let us stop hating people by our ignorance of not telling them of the kindness of God. To God be the glory, and may we live for Christ. See y'all next time.